This is Americana Podcast, the 51st state. Americana podcast listeners, how happy are you guys that it's not 2020 anymore? I know it's still been a little rough around the edges in the new year, but it still feels nice to move forward, doesn't it? You know, for every cloud, there is a silver lining, as cheesy as that sounds, and I find that turbulent years are often some of the best for music lovers. Whether it be regaining control and taking advantage of the moment to create, or wanting to have something positive to look back on career-wise, it seems musicians know how to not only make the best out of the bad, but are also still willing to share their art so that we can still feel a little bit better. On this episode of Americana Podcast, we speak with one such artist, John Craigie, a California singer-songwriter who is currently residing in Portland and knows all about the importance of sharing the good vibes. John Craigie began his career, like many artists of the early 2000s, playing in coffee shops up and down the coast of California with the occasional interstate appearance in other coffee shops. During this time, Craigie honed his craft as a songwriter, but also took the time to develop a real stage experience. Looking to artists he admired such as Todd Snyder and Arlo Guthrie, John Craigie adopted storytelling as a regular interlude in his set, a facet of performance which remains to this day. His performance has been captured in two live records, Capricorn and Retrograde, Just Kidding, Live in Portland, and Opening for Steinbeck, two albums that I personally recommend to everybody if I have not already trapped them in a car and made them listen to it on a road trip. No, I'm not sorry. These stories are a touching combination of funny and insightful and really open up the barrier between the stage and the audience. It helps that John Craigie himself is stunningly approachable in his demeanor, a personal attribute which extends to his musical identity as well. In 2009, he released his first record, Montana Tale, which exhibited his knack for first-person-oriented writing with solid rhythmical acoustic backing. Although there are consistent hallmarks of who Craigie is as a musician across his discography, he is fearless in his creativity. His nine studio albums over the years cover everything from Stomp and Holler, Collaborative Commune, to his latest 60s-esque groove experience, Asterisk the Universe. So join us today as our host, Robert Earl Keane, speaks remotely with John Craigie about his show development, creative co-creation, and the mathematical approach to picturing the universe. I'm your producer, Clara Rose, and this is Americana Podcast, The 51st State. It's a jam doing the right thing. I'm too old to do the wrong thing. I can't claim ignorance like some son of a man. My name is Robert Earl Keene, and you're listening to Americana Podcast, the 51st State. Our guest today is John Craigie, singer-songwriter and 
Oh, uh, some interesting stuff here. How are you doing, John? Yeah, I'm doing good, man. How are you? Very well. So uh, I understand you've lived uh, in Santa Cruz for a while, correct? Yeah, yeah. That's. Uh, I was born in Los Angeles. I lived there as a kid. And then when I was 18, I moved up to Santa Cruz. I lived there for about six years or so. So did you ever go to the mystery spot? Yeah, yeah that's actually, like the, the. I think, the first thing I did when I, I was... I went up there for college. That's how I got up there. And I think on the first time I went up there, uh, you know, I saw all the stickers and I, uh-huh. like, I got to check this place. If I'm going to move here, I got to know where this mystery spot is. So yeah, <clears throat> I, I went there. Right. Right. Yeah. It, it's a, it, it's somewhat uh, baffling to me. I, <laughs> I, I went a couple of times, I think, and I was still kind of going, well, I'm not sure. I guess the mystery is just the mystery of its the whole place itself, you know. So yeah, <laughs> I, should, I should go back as I was probably 17 when I went the first time. So I should, uh-huh. as with and, an adult with adult eyes, and we try to see what's up. And you started you started there in in uh, playing jam band music or playing in jam bands. Yeah, when I got there, this was like the height of the sort of jam band movement. You know, this was like early 2000s, and so. Uh-huh. I was a very amateur musician coming out of, even though I grew up in LA, my community there was very square. You know, I grew up in like a, right by the airport, sort of Inglewood area of Los, of Los Angeles. And my community was very sports and like just wholesome. So there was no real, I didn't know any musicians growing up, like no cool dads playing music. It was all just, you know, working class people. And then the thing the kids did was play sports and, and then, you know, you study. And so, I did play guitar in high school, but I was a bit of an outcast. So by the time I got to Santa Cruz, I didn't know what I was doing. And that was just what was happening at the time. So I got an electric guitar and I was in a jam band, but I had literally no business <laughs> being in that world. You know, you had to, you got to do a lot of whittle, 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 and I didn't, I didn't have any of that, you know? So it was a bit, a bit of a, uh, a scene, but you know, it was very, the jam band scene is very forgiving if nothing else. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. it seemed that way, you know, or they're or they're just too stoned to to care. But you know, it was very everyone was very pleasant and allowed me to sort of be there and and you know play my songs amidst this like so play these sort of like folk songs amidst this sort of soup of uh, of jamminess. And uh, we had a great time; it was really lovely. But it, it came apparent I, after about a couple of years that I should probably just take it to the coffee shops. You know, were you going to? Uh, uh school there in santa cruz at the same time you're in the yeah area? that's what initially got me up there you know i was going to ucsc uh-huh. and then uh i graduated from there and then i hung out for a little bit um just uh as as one does in santa cruz and uh yeah the, the music scene was pretty pretty bumping at that time uh for the sort of electric jam band but then i found the sort of folk pocket through uh our mutual friend sleepy john i know i know you know him and yeah he, he uh he has that please stand by show right on K pig. And I got myself into that and um, got to know him well. And he started booking me for his shows, snazzy shows. And that was sort of the beginning of me kind of discovering that world that I definitely always wanted to discover. You know, I wasn't aware of even someone as big as John Prine or uh, you know, something like that. I didn't know of that as, as a kid in LA, it wasn't really on my radar, but you know, K-Pig kind of, you know, turned me on to all those guys. And so that really kind of made my whole, you know, job 
make sense from there on out. So that was pretty cool. I ain't done these drugs in a while. But I'm down to match your smile. I'll just ride it out. Honey, you know how I am. Oh, and everything. Well, it ain't my usual thing. But you know, sometimes it comes around. And my window is open wide. I got no one on my mind. Come on and love me up while I'm down. So what was your first solo show that you played uh, as as a singer-songwriter? That's a great question. So I would, if you asked me, like, uh, uh, officially, like, um, I would want to say something at Kumbwa with Sleepy John and, <clears throat> and all that stuff. But in reality, I was playing a lot at this place called The Ugly Mug, which is in Soquel. It's a tiny coffee shop, um, you know, just uh, south of Santa Cruz. Right. And it probably holds maybe 30 people if you're and the people are just there on their laptops doing emails. And the guy there was really nice. He'd let me play. And I think he'd give me a free Danish or something <laughs> and coffee. Right. So I did a bunch of those shows. Um, and, you know, people started to come around. And this is also early 2000s. So you didn't really have the same kind of digital uh, interface that we have now. So I can't even remember what I was. I guess I was putting posters up or something. But I got to do it about once a month. and. And, uh, it's, you know, I started being able to at least fill that place, which was, which was nice. And, um, and then eventually, like I said, with, with John K pig's help and all them, I was able to do some more official shows. So, uh, K pig and, and, and sleepy John, uh, did they have, uh, an effect on your musical influences? I mean, in some, some kind of mentorship way. Yeah, definitely. I mean, like I said, coming out of, out of my upbringing, I, I always loved, you know, songwriter acoustic music, but uh, the radio stations that I listened to in Los Angeles, I was really only hearing, you know, like I would listen to the classic rock station. They wouldn't even play like Bob Dylan on that. I might get um, the, the, like the acoustic number by Led Zeppelin or by Jackson Brown or something, or the Eagles maybe was the closest I could get. So when I got to Santa Cruz, I somehow stumbled upon that station and then hearing uh, guys like Todd Steiner, Steve Rowe, even yourself, you know, um, it was a whole other world of music that I wasn't really, uh, you know, aware of. And then I was, I remember I started going to snazzy shows and seeing people like Greg Brown, Todd Snyder, Arlo Guthrie. And I really sort of found sort of comfort in knowing that a person could just hold a show with one guitar and storytelling and everything like that. It was, it was really cool. So can you fill in the space for me between uh, playing at the coffee shop and, and, and kind of collecting a, a group of musical influences and then uh, creating your first album, uh, Montana tale. Yeah. So it was, a, it's a long, it's a lot of space. So I'll try to condense it. Cause I really had no idea what I was doing. And, and like I said, this was before, uh, I don't want to sound like, you know, it wasn't before the internet, but it was before the internet was really so dialed in, you know, musically. So I think when I was 24, I took a, I called a bunch of coffee shops and bars between Santa Cruz and Boulder. I had an aunt that lived in Boulder and she called me and she said, I really want to see you play. And so I did a, my first tour and I made some money, you know, and I was just playing like I was doing, it was basically, I found the ugly mugs in each town and I had a, a little like burned disc of a few songs on it that I would sell and make a little money. And 
uh, I think I might have even screen printed a few shirts or something just to have some income going. And I did that for three or four years. And I and I was just going all around the country. It was a mix between a glorified road trip and a tour, if you if you would. I would sometimes I would just roll into a town, walk the main street, pop it into each bar and each coffee shop and just see if they'd let me play for tips or something. And and you know, if after like after seeing guys like Arlo and Todd, I learned that if you can't draw them in with your song, you could maybe draw them in with your story. And so I started to, it was sort of a mix of, you know, that technique, but also just the loneliness of the road. You can, things would happen and you wouldn't have anyone to share it with. So there you were at the coffee shop and maybe five people are listening to you. You start telling them what happened the night before. And then the other 15 start to, to, to tune in. And uh, yeah, I would start to get a little bit of a, of a remembrance and, come back again six months later and so there was some you know there was something going on for me I, I could feel that on on probably the lowest level possible and it took a long time though she takes pictures of me while i sleep laughs in the morning and she shows them to me says don't be mad please don't leave there's a party tonight because down here the 25th don't mean a thing in Colombia it's all about Christmas Eve so I change my plans and I drop my things and I say all right then you decided to make a record somebody suggested you make a record or um how did how did you uh, just made that decision yeah well like I said you know I was I was constantly like recording stuff on my laptop and you know making a little burn cd selling it at shows you know sharpie on it and mm -hmm. i i realized that you know people wanted a better uh you know version of that people liked the songs and i felt i owed it to to them and also i just thought that would be a good a good thing to do <clears throat> and that's so i yeah I, I took the money i had and uh, I went into a little studio actually in Santa Cruz and um, yeah, and I recorded that record uh, and had some, some really nice players on it. Felt really good about it. And, you know, it was, a, it was a, it's an ex expensive step at that time for me to to do the recording and make the, make the albums. And, um, but that's, that's really when it, things kind of started going good is that, cause then you can really leave behind uh, sort of a good, stamp of, of your song so that i noticed that as i toured and had that with me that you'd leave that in a town that starts getting passed around and, and next thing you know people are remembering your songs and and so that kind of got me thinking i got to keep doing this you know once a year so k-pig played uh that record for yeah you? yeah i think that was because that's the the longer version of it is that i did that please stand by show maybe eight times before john really <clears throat> you know he was always really nice to me but i he's got a good read of, of people. And I think he just knew I wasn't ready. I came in with that record and that record had a couple of songs that were fun. You know, they were like not so serious. They were serious in nature, but they had some sassy fun lines, you know, again, in, in the style of my sort of K-Pig heroes and, and John recognized that. And, and that's when he said, let's do it. Let's do this. Uh, let's do this thing. So that's what that was. That was when it started. I can I remember it <clears throat> as clear so as day. So your first studio experience, uh, uh, fear or embraced or <laughs> scared to death. I, you know, <laughs> yeah. I had all of those feelings. So I was, so I was, you know, 
I certainly can understand how uh, it, it affects everyone differently. Yeah, I didn't like it. I still don't really like it. You know, I love having made a record. I love to have records and have the songs recorded, but it's not my favorite because I had been touring so much and I'd gotten so used to that chemistry of audience, myself, feeling off them, telling them the story before each song, you know, <clears throat> rising and falling with their emotions. And so getting to the studio where it's just you and the guys and you're doing it, you know, I, I, I sort of didn't feel comfortable doing more than three or four takes. Cause I just, after that fourth take, I just was like, what are we, you know, it's like when you say a word over and over again and it starts to have no meaning anymore. Um, that first one. Yeah. I really just thought I was doing it wrong. You know, I just, it's hard. I mean, I think the hardest thing about the modern music business is that, is that you have to make so many decisions on your own. Whereas, you know, when you read these stories of the, of the ultimate legends, your, your Bob Dylan and your Beatles and everything like that, there was somebody at each step guiding them say, okay, now you do this. Now you do that. Here's how you do the studio. Here's how you do a tour <clears throat> for most people nowadays. And I'm sure for yourself as well, you got to make all these decisions. And, you know, I, I didn't know shit, you know, like I, I was just a kid from LA who had, who had very little, I mean, the littlest experience in the music business as possible. So with each step, you're just thinking, I'm probably doing this wrong. And, uh, and no one's going to tell me I'm doing it wrong. I'm just going to fail, <laughs> you know? And so I think that was probably my biggest concern at that time. Uh, but then you, I think you just learned that there are no rules in the music right. business anymore and you get to make them. And so as long as it feels right for you, then you just do it. Ranging from the depths of what you choose to see, who you choose to love, and what you choose to be, baby, don't take that long. And two rights don't always make a wrong. Darling, listen to me, life doesn't have to be as tragic as it is in my song. So back to uh, performing live, you, you, you certainly seem very comfortable in your live performance and you have this uh, friendly, casual uh, humor going on. And uh, that had that, did that develop through say some of the coffee shop experiences or did you um, sit down one day and say, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to put more, uh, more structure to my stories and, and, uh, and uh, get you know try to engage a little bit more is that or did it depend on the the different situation yeah you know for me also it was uh music like i said was not something natural to me but as a kid i was the class clown you know i was the <clears throat> i always was sort of the funny guy so what happened was i started to play in these coffee shops and then I started seeing guys like Arlo and Todd Snyder and I realized that you could combine the two that you could be serious and be you know funny at the same time because as a kid too I would see people like Adam Sandler or Flight of the Concords or things like that <clears throat> which I never wanted to be I, I remember being a kid and watching Adam Sandler on TV and and whom I whom, who I thought was amazing but I had this thought I thought what if Adam wanted to write like a love song or a serious song would would the world let him and i realized they probably wouldn't and that sort of scared me as an artist you know i thought you can't <clears throat> you can't get yourself into that corner so in the beginning i kept the two things very separate and i was just the funny guy off stage and the normal folk singer on stage but 
when I, I remember a specific Arlo Guthrie show that I saw at the Rio Theater in Santa Cruz. And, and I just, I, I studied that. So I said, man, he's doing it. He's doing the thing I want to do. And so, but it still took time because on stage, I was very uncomfortable, <laughs> you know, as, as one is in the beginning. So it took a while for me to get comfortable on stage and then to learn how to talk to people who aren't talking back to you. You know, that's the thing. That's the thing people ask me a lot about, you know, oh, you seem so casual and conversational up there. And, and it's just so hard to, to, you know, be funny to, you can be funny to your friends when they're with you and you're, they're allowed to have their input, but the crowd is sort of this beautiful, supportive mass that doesn't really get to, um, it's not a conversation, you know what I mean? And so that it did take a long time for me to, and I think, I feel like I'm still, I'm still learning and I'm still crafting that. I don't think, I think I will be forever, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm sure. I'm sure you understand that as well. Yeah, I know you. Uh, 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 <laughs> I've I've posed all those questions to myself <laughs> and, yeah. and still do. I understand that uh, you don't want to be labeled a comedian. Yeah, I don't think that necessarily. I mean, I I don't think I am a comedian. I think uh, that I think that <clears throat> most uh, the people that I'm that I'm influenced by are you know humans and it's sort of human music not to sound sort of cheesy or whatever but um <clears throat> a comedian's job is i feel like so much harder uh i think that what what the musician has the benefit we have is that it we don't have to be funny and it doesn't necessarily it is sort of subjectively funny i find some towns i go to uh the story i tell isn't funny and then the next night it is and it doesn't really matter because if it's the truth then it's okay. If I'm up there and I'm trying to be like, what's the deal with, uh, you know, credit cards or something like that, that I'm trying to be funny. And if that bombs, it really had no purpose. You know what I mean? But if I'm telling you the story of my failed, uh, you know, relationship or whatever, if it's not funny one night, it's okay. It's still, it's still something that happened. Sure. But I think that um, that's a big, you know, as we all know, labels are just very important in the music business. Everyone wants to put this on you or that on you. And, so I, I always was worried about some sort of, I didn't want to create a false expectation. Someone reads something in a blog or on the, in a paper and then says like, oh, I'm, I got to go see this funny guy and then gets there and then it doesn't work out for them. So, right. <laughs> but I think the other thing about being comfortable on stage, and I'm sure you would understand this too, is that after a while, your audience knows you. It's, there's very, it's very difficult. And this still happens to me when you play like a festival or something. I remember I did a, for your guys' neck of the woods, I did that Kerrville festival a couple years ago, uh-huh. and and I had never done that before. I played Austin a bunch, but I, you know, walking out on that stage, they they gave me a pretty decent slot there. Uh, I think it was maybe second to last or something on the one of the main nights. And right. but that's a pretty that audience. I felt I don't know if anybody knows me here, and I like that. I like to sort of play to a a virgin audience, but also you know they're not going to be on board, so you got to like kind of coax them into your sense of humor for a bit you know whereas sure. when you play your show your ticketed show it's full of fans of you of you they know right from the get-go <clears throat> the way that you're funny and i think that's that's right. just it's really it's an interesting dance but I, I i could ramble forever so so uh let's uh circle around to uh um, capricorn and retrograde uh, can you tell us tell me about uh, how that how that record evolved yeah yeah and that was a that was a big turning point for my career as well so here i am i'm putting out the the studio albums like montana tale and it's going good i'm doing the shows you know people are coming out but 
you you're doing these stories, which and and I know as you know, this can that can be more popular than the song at times. Somebody will remember that. People really really remember stories sometimes. I mean, I'll, I'll come back to a town, and eight you know eight years later, and someone will remember a bit I did. You know, and they'll say, "Hey, remember when you talked about that PE class or something?" And I'll be like, "I don't know what you're talking about," but people right. remember that stuff. And so, I was constantly getting those requests at the merch table. Hey, do you have that thing you say about coffee in Portland? Do you have that on a CD? And I said, I would always think that was so ridiculous. I said, No, I don't have that on the CD. It's just a thing I say. But again, with my heroes, the Arlos and the Todds and the Loud and Wainwrights and all those guys, I thought, well, these guys, they have them, you know, and I love those. I went about trying to uh, to capture that. And um, back then, I didn't really have, you know, much access to, you know, I knew how to make a studio record in a studio. I didn't really know how to make a live record. Luckily, there's, I had just moved to Portland, Oregon. There's a venue that I knew had a pretty decent reputation as their in-house recording. So, we just did it one night, you know, I was in the middle of a pretty big tour and kind of impulsively, I just said, Hey, can you record tonight? And I think they charged you like 50 extra bucks or something. And, mm-hmm. and I met, I was terrified because <clears throat> again, talk about being nervous in a studio. You still have that control uh, of, you could at least do three takes here. It was, um, it was all or nothing. And so many, there's so many variables with that. You could, somebody could, you know, be a irate, you know, heckler, you could have, one of your jokes just bomb and <clears throat> i got very very lucky that night uh and i'll never do that <laughs> again like i'll never just have it all hinge on one show in fact my second live album I, I i recorded a few different shows just to to um give myself a cushion luckily you know i had a really nice uh luck on one of them but i think that but anyway that was a turning point because then i could tour at the show have that album and that really started to get the the sort of word out there that spread more virally than a than a studio album because people really relate to like i said those stories and oh and so much has changed send in pictures is the way people flirt these days do yourself a favor don't go looking at the pictures on my phone <laughs> you might want to see some pics from when i went inside springsteen but don't swipe left don't swipe right don't even touch the screen <laughs> Cause I've been texting with this girl from France And apparently she don't ever wear no pants So do yourself a favor, don't go looking at the pictures on my phone Yeah, yeah, do yourself a favor, don't go looking at the pictures on my phone you have uh, rules for yourself, uh, you know, as far as, you know, in and around the stage Or just, you know, a, sh- a show show day? Do you, have, do you take time for yourself to kind of decompress or... Just uh, you know, I, 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 you know, I want water on stage. Any of those kind of things. <laughs> yeah, I think for me, well, I'm pretty meticulous with the story. The storytelling is a big part for me, and I, I enjoy that part. Right. I need to make sure that I do not repeat myself. Um, you know, so I take detailed notes of what I did. I have notebooks of you know, um, of you know, of each show I do and, and what I say, what, what stories I tell, you know, and each uh-huh. story is going to be different night to night, depending on the crowd. I don't really have these things memorized, but, and that's what I do love about stories is that it's really hard to tell a story the exact same way, unless you're like a theater major, which I am not. So, um, so yeah, I will definitely, if I'm at, let's say I'm at Cactus Cafe, I'll get the notebook out. I'll look at what I did last time I was at Cactus. <clears throat> Usually I have 
a batch of new stories with each tour, but sometimes you want to dip back into something old and just make sure that I don't repeat myself. Um, yeah, I need a little bit of, uh, I, I travel solo usually, maybe a tour manager, but I need that little bit of quiet time just to get my thoughts in order, uh, on stage, yeah, I got my water bottle. I don't, uh, I don't need too much else up there. I don't, I don't like to drink. Uh, I'm not much of a big drinker anyway, but I don't. I need to do the show sober, which uh, just because of the nature of the stillness, you know, being a Californian, you know, songwriter, and something about my delivery. People think I'm really stoned up there, and I always joke and say, that. <laughs> I joke and say, like, that's such a bad idea. Like, who's ever gotten stoned and been like? man, I wish there was like a crowd of people that I could stand in front of who are quietly staring at me, you know, it would be a nightmare. And, and I'm, I've done it before and it is, it is quite terrifying. And uh, other than that, yeah, pretty good. I like to run a tight ship. I like to start on time. I like to, uh, um, I think with a show like mine, for me asking people to sit quietly for an hour and a half, you know, two hours, if you include the opener, that's a lot to ask of people to, you know, to sort of like, be attentive. So I really want to not jerk them around. I really want to uh, have it really tight, give them the show and uh, really give a good punch, like give it a good, I'm very like attached to having that beginning, middle end and really have it. Cause I really want to tell a full story with the show. So sure. yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm a little, I or have the tour manager be very aware of all those things, but once I'm up there, um, that's been, that's home for me. You know, that's my most, comfortable place of the day you know the rest of the day i'm a little nervous or fidgety or anxious but once that that first song starts it, everything melts away and and i don't i don't want it to end you know that's that's i miss that so much you know so could we uh talk about no rain no rose came out in 2017 and yeah. uh seems like you had some really great streaming numbers on it and uh the the song song I am California. Um, uh, this song seems to really uh, resonated with a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. What had happened with the, with that project? I had uh, I had just moved to Portland. I'd recorded the um, the Capricorn record, and I had written I am California like a, a month before, and I had not planned on putting it on the record. But I played it maybe three or four times before that at some shows and just felt the response. And I thought, you know what, I'll play it live that night and I can always cut it out. And so I, I had an acoustic version on the live album, which had come out the year before. And that acoustic version was just getting some good traction. And, and I had just moved into this house in Portland um, and lived with uh, six people, three of them being, you know, fellow musicians in the, in my, in my scene, fr friends of mine. And, we decide, I decided to record my record there in the house. And just by chance, it was in January, which is not the loveliest time in Portland, but everyone's kind of home and hunkered down. There's not a lot going on. And so I just started having people come over who were in town, you know, see if they wanted to hang out, listen to, maybe even play a few tunes. And it just turned into this bigger thing. And I had a friend of mine, Gregory Alan Isakoff, who's a great songwriter from Boulder. He was in town and yeah, it, it all just kind of happened over the course of a week. And I think that I was able to really capture what I've been trying to do the past three albums, which was just sort of have this this feeling that was similar to artists like the band or sort of mid-60s Dylan or that sort of feeling of, of spontaneity and 
community all all happening at once and yeah when it came out that was the first time i ever like you know did the did the work you know had a publicist uh you know sort of had had a really big release show pushed the vinyl really hard and so um i've yeah i was i think i was lucky with that too that, that those songs kind of caught on and i think with the additional boost of people that came on board after the live album i think it all kind of was a, a really nice uh timing they just can't get enough you and me we got these bandages from where we've been we'll just lie right here grow some brand new skin we'll heal it all up we'll heal it all up can't make it back to your bed we'll pass out right on the floor how many times will you let me until you don't let me no more talk a lot about california on this podcast and it seems yeah. to, to be an inspiring concept for i know you're from california but yeah it's a you know a real inspiring concept for songwriters uh do you have any thoughts on that yeah you know i mean it's uh it i think it's a little hard like you said being being from here i don't get to see it through the eyes of of someone who, who gets to sort of discover it or travel to it but yeah i think it's a mixture of one it's historically been such this great uh, artistic, going back to Woody Guthrie, you know, you have so many songs that we grow up on about it. And of course, just as an American, it is sort of this finish, li finish line, promised land, you know, sort of, uh, sort of ending of the, of the sort of trail, if you will. And I, I, I did feel that even being there as a kid. Plus, you just have sort of the the diversity of it. So as a state, it's really hard to kind of pin down because, you know, you go to Joshua Tree, Death Valley, then you're up in Tahoe Mountains, then you're over in Santa Cruz Coast and <clears throat> Redwoods. And so it's a very compl complex state, not to mention all that's going on there and, and, the, and the rapidly changing nature of it and everybody <laughs> opinionated and, and separated. So for me, you know, that particular song came from you know, a lot of things and, and missing it was a huge part of it, living in Oregon and, mm -hmm. and also knowing that this is what we do as people. We sometimes leave great things just, just because we want to search and we don't like the comfort of, of knowing what, what's going to be there, even if it is possibly the best thing. And so I was just learning those lessons at, at that age, but uh, yeah, it's a state. I just I just went back for the holidays and and uh, yeah, it's just so inspiring to me. And and uh, I, I do like I do like not living there. I like to, I like to be moving around. But uh, man, it's a blessing and a curse. <laughs> so circling back around to collaboration, uh, it sounds like you you you've enjoyed the collaborative effort, efforts. Are there um, uh, are you going to do some more of those? Are there people that you would like to uh, get together with and work with? Yeah, I think what's the beauty of the solo artist um, is that you are free to, it's like almost like, forgive the metaphor, but it's like sort of being single versus being in a relationship. You know, when you're single, mm -hmm. you can kind of see anybody. And um, on one hand, that can be a little bit uh, sort of unstable and chaotic. But on the other hand, uh, 
you get a little bit of that of that uh, diversity. And my friends who are in a band, they you know they got to stick to that. They can sometimes bring somebody in, but they got enough to to deal with with each other. And I've really enjoyed that. I also have a thing where uh, I was just talking to uh, Gregory Isaacoff about this, where some artists have a sound that their their fan base is very attached to. You know, so let's take somebody maybe like a Fleet Foxes or a Bon Iver or whatever. People love them a lot because of a sound, not necessarily because of their, you know, their lyrics or their character or things like that. I always think back to, again, to reference John Prine, not that he could have done anything, but what I found with him is that people really liked him. And so when you can get to that point as a songwriter, you can kind of do anything as long as you're, it's good. You know what I mean? And, and I think, with John, nobody really needed any, there what you wouldn't really attribute a sound to him. You would just attribute a, a character and a vibe of, of his, of his sort of muse. Mm-hmm. So with that, I've always, you know, taken a book. I think same thing with maybe a Neil Young, who's another huge influence on me is that each album, I do want it to sort of stand alone and feel like its own chapter. And, and one way to achieve that is to bring in different people. Cause I know that if left to my own devices, I probably will, just sound like John Craigie, but if I can get some fresh blood into the studio, it's going to affect it. So who, yeah. Are you asking me sort of who else I would like to collaborate with? Is that, yeah. Oh man. Um, That is a great question. I I don't know. You know, I think what's a lot of my sort of heroes that are songwriters that I don't know if it would, uh, if it would make sense. Um, I've never really had much success with the sort of co-writing or collaborating with another person that's like me although I, I would love that you know um I've, I've had my times hanging with Todd Snyder and Hayes Carl and, and those and guys like that and I, lo- I loved it but um I always felt that we were probably all of us were a little protective over our <laughs> our brand and and sometimes you probably notice that too when you're hanging out with someone who's similar to you you don't want to you don't want to do too much together otherwise it'll shine a light on that so uh, I did have uh, I met a, a guy named Jack Johnson years ago and he, we became friends and I like when I meet people like that who are a bit different than me, but, um, but the collaboration feels really sweet. So off the top of my head, I, I can't think of anyone. I wish I had a better answer for you. I'll drink all my wine, cut all my trees, love all my beaches, smoke all my weed. I am California, can you see, wherever you go, you'll always want me. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with our interview shortly. At Americana Podcast, it is our goal to define and expand on the experience that is Americana music. Ranging from today's little-known knockouts to historical staples, our resident H.G. Wells and music connoisseur Will Vote has got you covered. This is Will's Pick. Paul Thorne, the single It's Never Too Late to Call. Paul Thorne is a very good songwriter and an interesting character. Born in Wisconsin, he grew up in Tupelo, Mississippi. Before turning to full-time music, he was a professional boxer and even fought Roberto Duran. No, he did not win the fight. In 1997, he was discovered playing in a Tupelo pizza parlor by Miles Copeland, brother to the police drummer Stuart Copeland. Since his debut record, Hammer and Nail, in 1997, he has released 10 more albums. 
son of a Pentecostal preacher, Thorne's music is a melodic stew of many influences. In his songs, you can hear traces of his religious upbringing, the sound of fellow Tupelo native Elvis Presley, the blues of Muscle Shoals Studio, and wry humor of John Prine. All this leads to memorable songs like I Don't Like Half the Folks I Love, Pimps and Preachers, and Burn Down the Trailer Park, to name a few. His sound is based in swampy southern rock, but his lyrics elevate the songs by telling stories about ordinary people that resonate long after they are over. He is a poet for every man, and this puts him solidly in the best of Americana. Thorne has released a new single that is a sweet ode to his recently deceased sister, titled It's Never Too Late to Call. It shows a softer side of Thorne's music, making this heartfelt ballad Will's Pick. Ask you about your ninth studio album, John Asterisk the Universe. Uh, let's talk about the title here. Yeah, well, that comes back to um, like I, oh, I, I guess I didn't mention, but in at UC Santa Cruz, my I majored in mathematics, which is always sounds more impressive than it actually was. I uh, uh, the joke I tell, but it is it is definitely based in reality, is that I got to Santa Cruz. And at that time, it was a very hippie school, and I was never much of a academic or a student or anything like that. And I knew I just needed to kind of get by college in order to stay there and learn the lessons I was really learning, which were sort of, you know, how to live on your own and how to play music. And I took a few music classes there, but there's a rigidness and a structure that I didn't like. And it also didn't really serve me. I think once I learned my C, F and G, you know, I was good to go. I didn't, I didn't, right. need, to, I didn't need to know the Mixolydian scale or whatever. And, mm-hmm. um, so I remember asking a friend, I said, man, I got it. What can I take? What can I major in that would just sort of be a breeze? And, and he was a bit older. He said, oh, you should do math. And I laughed at him. He said, no, nah, no, nah, man. He said, here at Santa Cruz, the math program is really easy because it's not a main focus. You know, if you if you majored in poetry or, um, you know, modern dance, you think that's easy, but that's what the school's all about. So they'll they'll huh. they'll kick your ass. But the math department is a, is led by a bunch of like ex deadhead, you know, acid dudes who who just want to talk about philosophy of numbers. And so I started taking a few classes and um, I loved it. And it was really quite easy, actually. I remember. I took a class one time and he brought in these pineapples and he passed them around and he was like, this is math. And we were all like, yeah, <laughs> you know, and, and it sounds like a joke, but I mean, that's what it was. And, and I did, I remember when it came time to do my thesis, I did it on infinity uh, because I had this really amazing teacher who I think it was called number theory and the class man. And we just literally talked about weird trippy things about numbers and, and the universe. And, he had said this, uh, talked about this thing about how infinity is a reality, but also a concept because we cannot really fully comprehend it. And, and the, the best example would be most scientists would agree that the that the um, universe is probably infinite. Um, yet, when we try to picture that in our head, if, if I told you to picture the universe, you would picture it, but your brain is going to put limit. It's going to put a box around it. It can't. Your brain can't just let it flow forever. And and so he had said something along the lines of, you know, you just put a little asterisk there that says not universe, not fully pictured. And 
<laughs> so that year I did my thesis and I titled it Asterisk the Universe. Um, and I got to turn it in and he, and he laughed and he said, oh, you don't need to title these. They're not, <laughs> they're not books. Or, and so uh, I always sort of pocketed that. I like that phrase. And so um, when I was recording this record, I've realized that when we were done that we had sort of had sort of some elements of this groove to it that I that I thought was really cool that sort of came out of these 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 great musicians I hired it really uh, I wouldn't consider myself a very groovy guy but I was really happy with that I wanted to have a title that that sort of um maybe uh distracted from that I wanted the I wanted the groove to sort of be a a surprise so I thought man I want like a real trippy title that would be a good for like a psychedelic jam band or something. And I remembered back to my jam band days and that thesis. And so uh, that's how the title came about. Don't ask if I've been writing, baby. You know I ain't been writing. If I've been writing, then I wouldn't be talking to you. I'm trying to board this train wreck. I used to have a ticket. Oh, the best shit I ever written, honey. It's all been coming from you. The song itself, uh, the, I, I love the record, by the way. It sound, sounds great. I love, I love the consistency and, uh, and, and whomever was playing on that record, it's just solid and yeah. beautiful. Every track is really beautiful. There is somewhat of a notable uptick in the tempo and the delivery of the song asterisk the universe itself it seems you know a little bit uh maybe i don't know maybe put more into it or I, you were thinking in a different way or maybe um you dropped the asterisk and and universe kept floating out there in your brain <laughs> yeah yeah well that's what i love about those kinds of records when you get everybody in a room and it's a similar way i did no rain no rose where i didn't really because my songs are fairly simple, you know, they don't, they're not too many changes or a couple chords. I don't really bother the musicians with learning them. I, I, I give them some demos they can listen to on the way over, but uh, I don't make them, <clears throat> I don't do any rehearsals. And so what that does though, is it can make it to where the way that I would initially play it on tour by myself can get drastically changed. And with that, I, th I think you're referring to a song called Don't Deny, where I, I, you, I mentioned that is that what you're referring to where I mentioned? Yeah, yes, yeah. yes. I'm sorry. Yeah, don't deny. I'm sorry. That, that's okay, yeah. Uh, I remember I was doing it the way I'd normally do it, which is just strumming a G to a C on the acoustic guitar. And the guy I had, Jamie Coffis, on piano, who's fantastic, I'm, he, I remember he and I were kind of looking at each other, and it it was just sounding very derivative of myself. You know what I mean? It was just I've, I've definitely hit G and C a bunch, you know, too many times probably. And he just looked at me, he said, Hey, what if we started like this? And he, and he just, he played his on the piano, on the acoustic piano, the GNC. And, but he played it with a lot more uh, exuberance than I, <laughs> than I would or did, but uh -huh. the guys just kind of kicked in and I almost, you know, I was just a member of the band at that point and best I could do was uh, sing along. So I think it was only within about 10 or 15 minutes that, that that song had taken new shape and uh, I was I sort of discovered a new uh, passion for it. So uh, that's what happened there. Yeah, it was a, definitely a really fun and uh, yeah, a lot more um, 
a beat than I think I normally would have uh, naturally gone. There's an asterisk on me and you, but there's one on the universe too. And I was high when you first made love. I was blinded by the light from above. You were singing like a drunken dove, flying fast through the pouring rain. Don't deny. on to what have you been doing um since you know the pandemic since the quarantine and uh, how have you been faring yeah you know the first at first i wasn't faring too great you know i have touring was my not just my you know career but it was really my lifestyle my sense of uh purpose my sense of um self-worth you know so it got you know when it got pulled so fast uh, I really didn't know what to do with myself. I haven't, I have a nice place here in Portland. I was lucky, you know, lucky, more lucky than some. And, uh, you know, I had some money coming in through the stream royalties and things like that. But yeah, it took me a couple months to kind of settle in. And so since then, I've just been working on a new record. I found that that was sort of the healthiest thing for me to do. So the new project I'm working on, I'm just, but I'm doing it kind of the opposite of the way I, have on those past two records i i um knew that it wasn't really appropriate to get a bunch of people in a room together and i also knew that that would be too quick i wanted something that i could really take my time with so yeah um over the past five months i've just been slowly going through this new project which is very a lot quieter and mellower and maybe sweeter than the the, the past few but uh it's been nice it's been a nice thing to sort of uh keep my keep me occupied. I, I look, I think of it as sort of like a painter who's got a canvas in his room and every, every day he gets to go over and add a few brushstrokes. And, and uh, I don't know if that's necessarily the best way to make a record or my ideal way, but it's sort of, I think it will, when this is all over, I think it will at least capture uh, where I'm at, which is really all I ever want an album to do is just be that mm-hmm. snapshot of, of, of where I was at at that time. So that's what mostly what I've been doing. I've also been, pickling and uh baking and you know all the things that one does uh in these times but what do you what do you think you'll um might be exploring that we would consider surprising in in the record you mean well no i'm just no. anything i mean in, in your future here when when things uh well i wouldn't say anything's ever going to get back to yeah. what we know as normal but when it when we move into a place where you know things are moving and and people feel a, a little bit more freedom yeah i mean mostly what i look forward to is just you know the thing i love about this i'm still at this stage in my career where i can go out you know to the merch area and, and set up a table and have like the meet and greets and mm-hmm. those are so valuable to me just to hear other people's stories and to hear you know how the music is affecting them and how you know, just what their lives are like. I really look forward to, you know, when we can do that again, you know, A, sharing my stories on stage of this time and then getting to hear everyone else's. I just think there's going to be a lot to say after this, not not just with the, the sort of uh, coronavirus, but everything, you know, with the political movements and what the, what, you know, the fires and the things that have happened in this world. It was, it's been a hell of a, I don't want to be, to sound too, cliche and tired you know to talk about 2020 but it has been quite a a year or so and so 
um, you know, as far as different, I do think that I will approach that differently, if nothing else, just with a new sense of uh, gratitude and appreciation that per perhaps all of us took for granted those kind of things. I think that we will all be so much more, you know, grateful for just having a show. Sometimes it's raining, sometimes it's the gorge. Sometimes it's a garage. Get over yourself and do your goddamn job. You're doing your own, dissecting the bird, trying to find the song. It's a miracle that you're here at all. Hey! So, John. We're going to move on to um, some other sections in our podcast here. Uh, this one is here at Americana Podcast. We're always looking to expand, explore, and define the term Americana. So, um, first of all, would you consider yourself Americana? I think so, yeah. I, I, I still don't know exactly what it means. But um, I, when I think of that term, I think of being a, being a kid, moving to Santa Cruz, listening to K-Pig, uh -huh. and hearing this other type of music that I was unaware of that um, that I really liked, which to me sort of just is uh, sort of the opposite of pop, you know, sort of a little more authentic, more real, more um, a little more gritty and uh, familiar. And so that's that that Americana music influenced me. So it would make sense. It would make sense to put myself in that category, although I also feel that it's a very loose category in the same way that like singer songwriter is pretty pretty sure. pretty vague sure. so uh, uh, who um alive or dead three artists that you would consider americana Whew, that's good i would say john prine um towns van zant maybe uh and let's see and then i'm trying to think of some uh it's, yeah, that's tricky. Let's see. Third, maybe Guy Clark. Not, I, I know that's kind of all in a, a very similar range, but those, no, that, those who popped in. Yeah. Uh, so, is there anything that you would say include or discard in in the in the thoughts about Americana, or you know, your own thoughts about Americana? Well, that's a good point. In this new record I'm, that I'm doing, I am using some. Uh, uh, some more synthesizers, some more soundscape stuff. Not, not like I'm going full eighties dance club, but right. I got really into the notion of sort of, uh, yeah, I was really trying to create something very chill and calm. And, and the studio I went to had a lot of these great, uh, Mellotrons and, um, sequencers and arpeggiators. So when I do that though, I do feel the Americana gods <laughs> kind of shaking their head a little bit. Um, so I, I think, yeah, at times, perhaps that's not necessarily part of it. I do feel like the storytelling is a huge plus, you know, that really feels very Americana when, I, when right. I'm doing that. Some element of acousticness in there, it doesn't always need to be a, a, a person with acoustic guitar, but I think there's an element of, I think that's why a lot of sort of country music and Americana can be very, uh, the line is very blurred because, um, one thing that country music usually does is it has that that foot in uh, somebody's doing something acoustic, whether it's uh, you know the um, banjo or the fiddle or a, a piano, an upright piano. So 
I think that's that's a, that's a big a big factor to it. Uh, Hallmark Americana venue. What what would you consider a Hallmark Americana venue? Probably, uh, although I've never played there. Probably like the Ryman in Nashville. Um, what else would be a good one? Again, probably like that. Whenever I play Cactus Cafe in Austin, I always I feel very <laughs> Americana. Mm-hmm. Um, I played the Troubadour recently in Los Angeles, and I think how was that? Oh, it was really fun. You know, Los Angeles, as you know, is is just a bit of a of a shit show for guys like us, but, um, <laughs> but I they, could go on. Yeah. I bet you could. Um, yeah. but they, 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 that's, that's a great venue. Uh, it, I think, you know, audiences respect the sort of air of the room. You know what I mean? And, and I uh-huh. think the Troubadour just has such a uh, reputation as that. So even though it's not sitting, you know, it's, have you ever been there before? Oh yes. Sir. Yeah. You know, yeah. It's not a. It's it feels actually more like a club, like a rock club, in, right. in as far as architecturally speaking. But I think because everyone associates James Taylor, Linda Ronstadt, you know, <clears throat> that kind of thing there, uh, that they come in with that respect, and so it was a, it was a crystal quiet crowd standing there, which is hard for me to get in LA. So uh, in that sense, yes, it was nice, but um, but I don't love it. <laughs> I wouldn't. Yeah. I wouldn't put it on the recommended list. Mm-hmm. What kind of life you live and having no regrets? You tell your story, but you ain't got no climax. You best get back in the ring. Mm-hmm. And like how to bleed, now cause it's part of woe. It's part island and it's part cold. It's part violence, I got my head we're gonna move to the lighter side these are just like i said some general questions early on uh, early on when i I was explaining this to you early on the the lighter side of americana podcast here the last music movie you watched Ooh, good question um let's see i did just watch uh um what happened to miss simone which i which she's one of my all-time favorites and if I had to pick a favorite, um, or they, uh, there's all often that question: if you could have dinner or meet, you know, somebody living or dead. Right. I usually say Nina Simone. I and that was a beautiful um, documentary. Favorite cover song to play? Oh, you know, I think the best. I think "Don't Think Twice." It's all right by Bob Dylan uh-huh. is my favorite song to play because it, it's as far as like the chordal and melodic choices. It does. It just does everything, and in in like these four little chunks, and uh, I think it's something that I always look forward to. I don't play it that often, but that's probably my favorite cover song. Uh, uh, have you figured out the Portland coffee game? <laughs> yeah, I've gotten better. I don't know if I figured it out, but I definitely know. I go places where they let me put cream and honey because I don't like it black. So um, that's that was a big fact. I can't. I had to avoid the the uber hipster places who would look down on me for my my watered down coffee but if uh, you had to move tomorrow where would you move uh either new orleans or austin your favorite board game uh currently there's a board game called code names which is uh modern but it's one of my, i play it i love it yeah yeah it's called what code names it's just a really fun like word association game you play with teams and it sounds if you describe it to someone it sounds very boring but the moment you start playing it's just a very fun social game. All right. Favorite outdoor pastime? Uh, 
definitely uh, hiking. And uh, here in Portland, there's tons of waterfalls. And I don't think I love anything more than hiking into the woods and then finding the waterfall. It's one of my favorite things. Nice. Yeah. Okay, we're moving on to the lightning round here at Americana Podcast with John Craigie. There's millions of dollars in cash and prizes <laughs> here. So um, uh, the lightning round is pretty much either or. John, you ready? Yeah. Uh, Nina Simone or Dusty Springfield? Nina. <laughs> Steppenwolf or the Zombies? Zombies. Blondie or Hall and Oates? <laughs> uh, Hall and Oates. All right. Child of the 80s. Uh, snowboards or surfboards? Uh, surf. Cold brew or pour over? Pour over. Santa Monica or Santa Cruz? Mm, Santa Cruz. Santa Cruz guitar or Gibson? Mm, Gibson. Stephen Wright or Jim Gaffigan? <laughs> oh, Stephen Wright. Highway 17 or Highway 1? Oof, that's tough, but one. Okay. Lake Tahoe or Reno? <laughs> Tahoe. Dodgers or Angels? Dodgers. Reverb or Tremolo? Reverb. Catering or Buyout? <laughs> uh, uh, probably catering so I can stay and hide in the green room, but I love a good buyout. This is a multiple choice. You are a true Grateful Dead fan if A, you've been to over 100 shows, B, your kids are named Jerry, Bob, and Mountain Girl, <laughs> C, you have a skull tattoo, D, all of the above. <laughs> I'm going to go with all of the above. <laughs> uh, one last question, the lightning round, and there's one other question. Uh, okay, this is it. A meet and greet or tuning in 432 hertz? <laughs> I'll take that meet and greet. Okay. <laughs> okay, so here in Americana Podcast, we're looking for a much better name than the poorly named, beautiful, fantastic, magical instrument called the B3. So we're looking for a new name for the B3. Do you have one? Oh, that's a great... <clears throat> you mean the organ is what you're saying? Yeah, the B3 organ. That's right. We, we just think it's, you know, too... Whatever it is. Governmental, military. Yeah, it's a little mathematical, huh? Yeah. Uh, let's see. Um, I'm really not. I'm, I'm naming things is my least favorite thing. <laughs> I'm the worst at it. I would say um, the uh, let's see the Vibra Box. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, that's a good one. All cool. right, John Craigie, here on Americana Podcast with John Craigie. My name is Robert Earl Keen. Um, I really appreciate it and uh, uh, look forward to uh, seeing you play sometime. I, I, I really like your record, so um, be safe and, uh, and, and take care, and, and best of luck with all, all of your endeavors. I appreciate it, man. All right. We're going to switch it up a little bit right now. As always, it is our goal to shed light on musicians we feel you would enjoy. If you've listened to this show before, you know our theme music is written and performed by the incomparable Kim Warner and we'd like to take a moment to shed light on some of his other work. Kim released an amazing instrumental record in 2015 called Everything That Brought Me Here, and today's credits are being played out to the track El Palomar. If you enjoy this or our theme music, please go check out the record. Thank you. At Americana Podcast, we would like to thank our host, Robert Earl Keane, and our guest, John Craigie. Americana Podcast is brought to you by Keen Productions and American Songwriter and was recorded at Snake Barn Studios. Edited and produced by Clara Rose with original music by Kim Warner. 
Until next time, let the music play. <laughs> <laughs>